Good day to you. Let's talk about your locus of focus. What is your locus of focus? Where have you placed your attention and your effort? I've decided to see whether my purely Christian work or my secular work will prosper more. Not to test God, but to clarify the way forward. And Jesus is the way. In my work in the world of business, that's not my job. It's my assignment from God. But it has ceased to prosper and I'm curious about whether it's time to enter into the fullness of ministry. It certainly seems like the end is nigh. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 6 talks about this split testing thus. In the morning sow your seed and in the evening don't withhold your hand for you don't know which will prosper, whether this or that, or whether they both will be equally good. Well we will find out, won't we? Even more well known, Verses 1 and 2 of Ecclesiastes 11. Cast your bread on the waters, for you shall find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, yes, even to eight, for you don't know what evil will be on the earth. The advice then from God is to diversify. And what great advice this is during the current crisis. I heard of a business this week whose inventory was dependent wholly upon Chinese manufacture and shipping. Guess what? Even the world says, don't put all your eggs in one basket. In the world of business, I teach the importance of multiple asset streams of income. In English, that means having income from the inspiration God gives you as an evangelical entrepreneur through publishing. So maybe it's your book, it's your membership site, it's your YouTube channel. There are all sorts of ways where you can take God's inspiration, give it to your audience and expect a fair return. But it's also about investing in joint ventures, being equally yoked with other evangelical entrepreneurs, affiliate income, owning a self-managing business that provides employment for others, a property portfolio that provides homes for others in safety and shelter. And if you were wise in your younger days, like I wish I was, uh, your house, your pension and your investments, these are all multiple streams of asset income. If you'd like to learn more about this blueprint for financial freedom in Christ Jesus, send me a message and I'll send you a link free of charge to the audio version of the book on this subject. Anyway, I want to share insights on entrepreneurial, if I can say that word, you have to come at it quite slowly, insights on entrepreneurialism, it's quite a big word isn't it? on leadership and on emotional intelligence with churches and Christians garnered from my years in business and corporate training. In my experience, Christians often know they need to lead, they know they need to love, and they know they need to be shrewd, but equally often don't know how to do these important matters. I believe we can maintain a faithful focus on Jesus whilst maintaining the innocence of the dove with the shrewdness of the serpent. As Jesus put, puts this, Behold, I send you out as sheep among wolves, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Matthew 10, 16. And his Lord commanded, not commanded, commended, commended the dishonest manager because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their own generation wiser than the children of the light. I tell you, make for yourselves friends by means of unrighteous mammon so that when you fail, they may receive you into the eternal tents. He who is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. He who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, 
who will commit to your trust the true riches. If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You aren't able to serve God and mammon. So when I work in the world, that's an assignment. I'm not serving the world. I'm serving God, and I have an assignment from God. And that's the same for you too. True and true. Seems the way we handle our wealth, our worldly wealth, is the very first test of authentic Christianity. And I have to say, most churches have failed at the first test. Let's focus on Paul for a minute. He had um, a vision, a 2020 vision in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, when he shared his last words with the Ephesian elders. The Apostle Paul, in his farewell to the Ephesian elders, says in Acts 20, 20, how I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly. So Paul gave everything he could. He didn't hold anything back whatsoever. He shared everything he could that he thought would be of value to the Ephesian elders and the church there and from house to house and publicly. He's echoing wholesome advice from the book of Proverbs, the very first management training manual. This was a book of wisdom for how to behave at court and how to succeed in life. 3,000 years old, how about that? Proverbs 3 verse 27, it says, Don't withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do it. So I've learned tons of stuff over my nearly 60 years now and it's my God-given duty to share that with those who are ready to listen. It's not for everybody, it's for those who are ready to listen. Thus, I've set my heart very early on in my ministry to give valuable content, not expecting anything in return, because that's the way that God has it. You give expecting nothing in return, because he is my master. He's my employer. He's your employer. To give, like Paul, at point of delivery freely to everyone who is hungry for learning. However, there is no sustainable giving without receiving, and it's appropriate to provide a channel of thanks to fuel my future capacity. So if you'd like to increase my capacity to share more with you, if you find value in this, um, I provide practical content at no cost, really because there are some people out there who can't afford to pay. They need to understand practical content to build a worthwhile productive and profitable life. But that's how I make my living. That's how I earn my living. So if you find value in this and you'd like to express your gratitude, you can go to ko-fi.com, coffee, ko-fi.com forward slash magnanimous. Wonderful, generous word there. ko-fi.com forward slash magnanimous and you can buy me a coffee. You can keep this going. So here's today's message on Jesus, on circumstances and the flesh. This morning's inspiration was about the locus of focus. This proved to me once more the power of our sleeping thought. I closed off last night with a reading from Jesus, the healer, by E.W. Kenyon. An excellent and timely book for the current crisis and available on Amazon. <laughs> In E.W.'s Kenyon's book on Jesus the Healer, he talks about two types of knowledge, sense knowledge and revelation knowledge. This was the first time I'd understood revelation knowledge in a new light. 
Sense knowledge is what our scientific systems are founded upon. If there is no sensory evidence, it can't be true, is the attitude of carnal science. Now remember that most scientists have said in their heart, there is no God, and the Bible says, whoever says in their heart, there is no God, is a fool. Hmm, enough said. It's not that sensory knowledge isn't useful. Of course it is. It helps us cross the road safely. It helps us park safely. It helps us read others so that we can be emotionally intelligent and be good leaders or even good neighbours. So it's important stuff and we praise God for it. But sensory knowledge on its own is not enough. It is literally insufficient. There are gaps. I used to understand revelation knowledge as God's specific rhema word, that spoken word, that specific word, into a specific situation. That's the sword of the spirit. Boom. It is written. This is a true understanding of revelation knowledge, but there is another aspect. There's more. Fully, revelation knowledge is knowledge that is revealed. It does what it says on the tin. This means a word of knowledge, as in the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit. But it also means knowledge revealed that impacts science. Knowledge that's higher than sensory knowledge. The arrogant king, Herod. There are several Herods in the Bible, but this is um, probably the last one mentioned, I think, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12. He was a persecutor of the church. And according to Acts chapter 12, came to a rather unpleasant end, an interesting end, a fascinating end. Here are verses 21 to 23 of Acts chapter 12. On an, on an appointed day, Herod dressed himself in royal clothing, sat on the throne and gave a speech to them. And this is to a bunch of people who want to ingratiate themselves with Herod. The people shouted, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he didn't give God the glory. Then he was eaten by worms and died. Blech. Let's pause for a minute and think. Using science knowledge, sensory knowledge, what would the attending physician have said? He would have declared that Herod died of natural causes due to parasitic worms. Notice Herod was eaten by worms and died, not died and was eaten by worms as in the grave. Peter's mother-in-law, when sick of a fever, would have been told that she had a virus by the attending modern physician, the healthcare service. But Jesus had a different strategy to bed rest and plenty of fluids. Here's Luke's good news, chapter 4, verses 38 to 40. He, that means Jesus, rose up from the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was afflicted with a great fever and they begged him for her. He stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. Immediately she rose up and served them. When the sun was setting, all those who had any sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. The biblical model, the biblical model, the faithful model to the scriptures is that Jesus heals all sickness and all disease and that some of it has a spiritual root. So Herod struck by an angel and Peter's mother-in-law is afflicted by something that needs rebuking. Wow, this is not science knowledge. This is not sensory knowledge. Yes, Jesus, with revelation knowledge, rebukes fevers. Yes, Jesus, with revelation knowledge, rebukes coronavirus. There you go, I've said it. Yes, Jesus, with revelation knowledge, talks to waves and winds. 
In fact, let's shift our focus to that account in Matthew 14, 22 to 33. I quote beginning after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 men. As you add the women in there and the children, it's probably a crowd of 10,000 fed with five loaves. Is it five loaves and five fish and a couple of loaves? Anyway, fed with not very much. Here's what uh, Matthew says immediately, immediately after that amazing experience. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. After he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into the mountain by himself to pray. After that moment of victory, he goes up into the mountains to reconnect one-to-one -one, quietly with the Father. When evening had come, he was there alone. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, distressed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So these are circumstances contrary to the well-being of the disciples, of the team. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. <laughs> this is not a calm mill pond. This is a raging storm. Jesus walking on the water, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost, which is a sign in that culture of the time, that you're about to die. So this is not a great day for the disciples, except it is the greatest day. It's an amazing day. They've seen 5,000, maybe 10,000 people fed from a tiny amount. They've seen miraculous multiplication of assets. Amen. And, and now they're going across in the face of contrary circumstances. The winds are against them. They are distressed and they've seen a sign that they think they're going to die. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, cheer up. It is I. Don't be afraid. If you're afraid of the coronavirus, cheer up. It's Jesus. Jesus is at hand. Don't be afraid. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the waters. He was looking for a direct rhema of God, that commanding word, that revelation knowledge. Jesus said, come. Peter, I love Peter, stepped out of the boat and walked on the waters. Yes, what a guy. But when he saw with sensory knowledge that the wind was strong, he was afraid. He grew afraid and beginning to sink. He hadn't sunk, he began to sink. He cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And that's okay. You know, Lord, save us at this time but there is a better way. Immediately, this is immediately words, immediately they get into the boat, immediately this, oh, that's wonderful stuff. Dramatic. Some people think God is slow. No, he's not. He's like, boom, light. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, You truly, you are truly the Son of God. End of that quote in Mark 4 and Luke 8, other stories about storms in the boat. Jesus rebukes the wind. Jesus rebukes the wind. But like he rebukes the fever, he rebukes the wind. 
And this is in a situation where he's asleep in the boat peacefully while the storm is raging all around. And it's a storm. It's putting them at risk. They say, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? And he gets up and rebukes the wind and says, come on, guys, where's your faith? It's a lesson to us all and not an easy lesson. I recognise that, but an important lesson at this time. Today, however, God brings our attention to Peter's courageous steps out of the boat in the face of the storm and the winds which are contrary. You've got to love Peter, haven't you? He's a real give-it-a-go guy. Who cut off the ear of the high priest's servant in the Garden of Gethsemane? Yep, Peter. Boom. Who followed Jesus into the court? Yep, Peter. And on whom did Jesus build his church? Yes, Peter. He's my kind of guy. The message for today is, where is our locus of focus? Locus means a particular position or place where something occurs or is situated, to which I would add a particular person, position or place where something occurs or is situated. That's the point. Where is your locus of focus? You and I know to lift up our eyes to the Lord. He's where our help comes from. He needs to be the focus. All the time Jesus was Peter's focus, he walked on the water. However, sense knowledge will always encourage us to look to our circumstances. When Peter saw with his senses that the wind was strong, and it was truth, the wind was strong and contrary, he began to sink. Where's your attention? Where's my attention? I'm speaking to me, not just to... You good folks out there, Jesus prayed that our faith would not fail. Faith can fail. Serious stuff, isn't it? In that moment, Peter's faith wavered. And whilst he was like the only one of the disciples that gave it a go, you've got to give him that. He was the only one that gave it a go. Jesus didn't comfort him and praise him for his partial courage. No, nope, Jesus rebuked him. He said, you have little faith. Why? Did you doubt? Now, when Jesus says that, that's the truth. He's the way, the truth and the life. That was a valid challenge. Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Jesus expected him not to doubt. He expected him to have faith. Clearly, Jesus expected Peter to succeed in walking on water. What? By the way, that's scientifically impossible. Abraham is the father of faith, one of our heroes of faith. Abraham shows us how to deal with another erroneous and destined to fail locus of focus, the flesh, our bodies, our natural bodies. So let's think about growing strong in faith rather than focusing on Peter's partial win, partial failure. I don't suppose you can have a partial win, really. Peter's failure, but he gave it a go. Let's see how to rise above the waves and keep our focus on Jesus. Romans 4 gives us a strategy for growing strong in faith. Here it is from the second part of verse 16, and I quote, But to that also which is the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. That's Genesis 17 verse 5. This is in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls the things that are not as though they were. Wow. Besides hope, that means in spite of hope, in spite of the hopelessness of the situation, besides hope, Abraham 
in hope, believed to the end that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, the rhema of God, the revelation of God, the revelation knowledge of God, which says, so will your offspring be, Genesis 15 verse 5, without being weakened in faith. He didn't consider his own body already having been worn out. He being about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet looking to the promise of God, looking to the promise of God, looking to the promise of God. He didn't waver through unbelief, but grew strong through faith. Grew strong through faith. Abraham grew strong through faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Wow. You can see where I'm going here. The only focus, the only focus, the only focus that's going to work is that which is on Jesus, the author and finisher, the author and perfecter, the author and completer of our faith. The one in whom all the promises of God get their yes and our amen is said to the glory of God. That's Hebrews 12, 2 and 2 Corinthians 1, 20, which we are going to look at. In fact, let's listen, first of all, to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. Therefore, let's also, seeing we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let's run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We can look to the winds and the waves, and use sense knowledge to nullify the promise and command of God. We can look to the contrary evidence of what's going on in our body, Abraham's body, worn out, Sarah's body, her womb as good as dead. We can look at that and use sense knowledge to nullify the promises of God. Or we can look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and use revelation knowledge to follow his command to come. Come to him on the water, step out of the boat, in spite of the wind, which is contrary, and learn to walk on the water. Learn to do the scientifically sensory knowledge impossible. Learn to rebuke fevers. Learn to work with his angels who are sent forth to render service to you and to me as heirs of salvation. The promise is there. The option is there. The opportunity is there. Will we answer the call? Well, I think life and death now depends upon that. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. Therefore, we need to confess the rhema word of God, the spoken word of God, the spoken word of God into these situations. Let's focus on the promises and hear with our spiritual ears attuned to revelation knowledge, the resounding yes and amen louder than any enthused Pentecostal congregation. Amen. I'm going to finish with 2 Corinthians verse 1. Uh, chapter 1, verse 20. For however many 
are the promises of God. In him is the yes. Therefore also through him is the amen to the glory of God through us. Amen.